Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have a fantastic guest, Mark Bonchek, who is the CEO of Shift Thinking. He's a speaker and an author. He leads organizations to help them make the shift from incremental to exponential growth and achievement. He is a frequent writer for HBR. He's helped such organizations as McKinsey, The Economist, IBM, Adobe, Kaiser Permanente, and American Heart Association. He speaks on topics of digital disruption, new models of customer engagement, network leadership, thinking styles, and unlearning, and a regular contributor to lots of great content. So I just want to welcome Mark to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Tiffany. But I have to say, you know, you have a title also, uh, CEO means obviously Chief Executive Officer, but also Chief Epiphany Officer, which I think is a cooler title than I actually have. And so uh, I'm going to ask you in a second to, to cover that. But before we get started, um, I love to start off the podcast with bullish and bearish. It's my opportunity to ask you three off-the-cuff questions that you can answer bullish and bearish to. And so... We'll get started, okay? Very good. Great. So the first one is bots, AI, machine learning taking over the role of a salesperson. Oh, um, uh, bullish on the trend, uh, bearish on how people will react to it on the sales side, and bullish on how people react to it on the customer side. Oh, well, that was good. That's a good one. All right, the next one, the future of work with machines and people working in harmony. Um, uh, bullish on the possibility, uh, bearish on how well technology companies make that possible. All right, and the last one, customer experience is the new battleground. Uh, bullish, absolutely. That was easy. Yeah, so I'm going to start with uh, the chief epiphany officer. I can't let that one go. Everyone always gives me a hard time for my title as being growth and innovation evangelist. So I'm going to ask you to first start with what does that mean? Well, I, it comes from um, an insight I had of what business I'm actually in, which is I, I realized that I'm not in the consulting business. I'm in the epiphany business and that um, what I'm out to achieve for people is that kind of aha moment when they see the world a different way. And it, it came to me because I was um, with my kids at one of these uh, indoor skydiving places, if you've ever done that. And they had indoor skydiving and kind of a wave pool and rock climbing and all these things. And I thought, what's the thing these all have in common? And I realized that they're in the adrenaline business. It's not indoor skydiving or wave pool or anything else. They're in the adrenaline business. And then I realized that Starbucks is in the, the kind of dopamine business between caffeine and sugar and everything else. And I thought, well, what business am I in? And that's when I realized that, well, I'm in the epiphany business, that there's something when people have that aha moment. And that's what I'm after is to shift thinking in a way that doesn't just make them smarter with more information, but enables them to see the world in a new way. 
Well, I think that's great. I mean, I think that's the in and, and it's CEO, CEO, right? So you can say yeah, I'm the CEO, exactly. shift thinking, and the chief epiphany officer. But what a great way to look at it. And I and I think it totally uh, leans into what what shift is all about, right? It is really about helping companies reimagine their business models. Um, so I'm going to start there because I think every business I talk to, small, medium, large, is looking for a disruptive business model. Either they're looking for one or they're responding to one that's happening in their marketplace. And how they can quickly, as, as I'm sure you've heard and, and probably many people listening to this podcast, you know, how do I Uberize or Airbnb my business? But a business model is only part of that equation, right? What is it you think leaders today may be missing if they only focus on that business model and the epiphany is, wow, we're not doing it that way. But I, I think you've got a lot more behind that than just the business model. Yeah, I think that the business model in some ways is on the surface and what's underneath it is the mental model. And then you also have to look at it as the measurement model. So sometimes we talk about it as MBM. It's mental model, business model, and measurement model, and they all have to line up. And the place to start is the mental model. I like to tell people, don't emulate the business model, emulate the mental model. So as an example of that, if you look in the airline business, you know, Southwest created a new business model that disrupted the airlines a few decades ago, the low cost, what's now called the low cost model. And you had all of the traditional carriers, uh, you know, United and Continental and others tried to copy that business model and they failed. And they had all sorts of excuses why. The real issue was that they didn't copy the mental model. And the mental model is that Herb Keller realized that it wasn't about airplanes, it was about people. And all throughout the history, it's always been about people, the way they take care of their employees, the way they take care of their customers. And so the mental model, if you had to summarize it for Southwest is, is that they fly people using airplanes. Whereas the traditional carriers fly airplanes that carry people. And it's much more than a semantic difference. It really is whether your mental model is focused on the assets or the people. And JetBlue has been successful because they've copied the mental model of Southwest beyond just the business model. And I think that goes back to what we were just talking about at skydiving, right? He's not in the airline business. He's in the people business. They're not in the skydiving business. They're in the adrenaline business, exactly. right? Yeah. And understanding, uh, you know, the fact that you have to change how you think before you can change what you do and, and then change what you measure to close that loop, right? It's all three of those things simultaneously, not one individually. That's right. They all have to line up. You know, you could see it the same way, which is what you measure uh, Amazon, for example, of they have about 500 um, KPIs across the business of what they measure. And 80% of them are customer centric because their mission is to be the most customer centric organization on the planet. And their measurement models line up to that. I would challenge you to find any other retailer that has that proportion of customer to company metrics that they measure. Yeah, and I think customer centricity is a is a great conversation because I think that becoming customer centric means a lot of things to a lot of people. So I'd love to hear what what do you how do you define customer centric? And obviously, based on that example, one of them is the metric. Uh, but what else would you say goes behind customer centricity? Well, it actually relates to our point about the mental model behind the business model. In this case, where I always start is 
what is the mental model behind whatever it is you're talking about or working on? So let's look at the mental model of customer centricity. And what I've noticed is that there are actually two different mental models. You can have two people using the word customer centricity and they actually mean completely different things. So one mental model of customer centricity comes out of the, the older view of a kind of outbound broadcast influence model of engagement and, and marketing. And that is that we are customer centric because we are focusing our resources on targeting, segmenting, running campaigns, moving customers through the funnel, but we're, we're outwardly focused. We're customer centric, but it's kind of like, um, I find it's always helpful to have a visual when you're working on mental models. It, it's kind of like saying that the, um, the archer is target centric, right? They're focusing, they're, they're aiming at the target, but the customer is a target. That's one model of customer centricity. There's a different model of customer centricity which works backwards from the customer. And you can see the companies that, that work this way where it's about, startups tend to be this way. What is the need that we're filling? What are the customer's objectives? How do we help the customer fulfill their objectives? So the first model is what are our objectives and how can we focus on the customer to get them to do the things that achieve corporate goals. The second model is what are the customer's goals and how can we marshal our resources to help them achieve their goals? Both of them are customer centric, but one is about you and one is about them. So that's great. So let's go back to that analogy because if we take the archer, right, aiming for the target, I've had a lot of conversations with him. I'm not sure if you know Peter Fader, but he wrote the book Customer Centricity. It's a professor at Wharton, and we have these debates all the time on this very topic. Uh, I wish he could, you know, jump in for this conversation. But if you if you think about uh, customer centricity and you think about that sort of mental model of the target, the inside ring may be customers that you know the whole target you're tar you know you're aiming for, but you want to hit the middle, and but each of those rings from a customer perspective can't possibly scale to the same level of touch or customer centricity outside of, I know I want you as a customer. And so there's different levels of that communication. So like social selling may be the way you do broad-based marketing today, right? And then account-based marketing is where you're getting closer and closer to the middle of that target or sales development reps. I'm just trying to tie it back, right, to a sales and marketing action because yes. there's no way you can say, I'm only going to aim or, you know, so if you use the metric from an Amazon, Amazon has millions of customers it's, and they will measure customer experience across those, but there's going to be varying degrees potentially of service that they provide them um, because they can't serve everybody potentially in that middle target way. Would you agree with that? Well, um, yes, partially, but it also is, see, what happens is you start to run out of mental model, meaning you're trying to match the second kind of customer centricity into the target model, and it falls down because all of those models of target segment, funnel, campaign, channel are kind of linear in one way. And what I had to end up doing is, is to create a new model that allowed for the kind of engagement that people are looking for today. So instead of targets and funnels, 
um, I looked at it, uh, and which is all about pushing a message out. What I looked at is, is, well, how do we create kind of pull? How do we influence at a distance? And that's about gravity. So if you think about it as a gravity model instead of an archer model, what you want to do is pull customers into your orbit. You're creating a solar system or a social system. And that opens up a lot of different ways of thinking about it because now what you're saying is, is all right, I want to create that kind of outer attraction, pull them into those outer orbits with things that are often, that's where a freemium model comes in. How do I give them a taste of the experience of being in my orbit so that they see why they should be in my system and not someone else's? Google and Apple are good examples of that. And then what you progressively do is pull them into closer and closer orbit with the kinds of things you're saying, you were saying about account-based marketing and so on, where you're, you're closer and closer. And then in the outer orbits, you want scale. In the inner orbits, you want intimacy. So I find that that visual gives people a different way of thinking about customer centricity that enables them to make the jump to the second way of working. It's not a coincidence like with Amazon. If they didn't have the Prime program and a membership relationship rather than just a shopper relationship, I don't know that they would be able to actually deliver on their mission. Yeah, and I think that's a really great great way to frame that up because I think people struggle on this customer centricity or customer experience. How do you execute on customer experience? So I see lots of companies that will say, well, I'm just going to use social as, a, as an example, right? That I tweet out something and I tweet out something about some brand and they respond to me immediately and they sort of check the box where we're customer centric, right? We're delivering this experience. We're responding within, you know, three minutes. And, and they feel like that's a metric. But is the answer really that they respond to everybody? Or should they then take a pause, look back, right, and say, well, that's someone in our orbit, right? As you said, we've pulled them in, they're reaching out. But it isn't something that requires a high-touch response. Maybe it's something where we start to weave in some of the analytics or bots or you know, machine learning, et cetera, where it gives a, an experience but not a high-touch. Yeah, it's a great example of the um, problem with the first model of, of customer centricity, where when it's an outbound model, you think that you have to be on one end of that because the, the archer model is the cu customer's on the other end, you're the archer. So customer centricity is demonstrated by what you do for the customer. So imagine your situation of the customer support and one way to scale it that a number of companies have done, whether Dell to Sephora and others, is creating really engaged customer communities and user groups where customers answer each other's questions. And if you have a kind of archer target model of customer centricity, then you might say, well, if a customer answers another customer's um, question, we're not necessarily being customer centric because that's probably not going to be in the measurement model versus speed of reply. Whereas I would argue in a gravity orbit model, the more people you've pulled in, the fact that someone would answer another customer's question says you've generated a lot of gravity with them. And if your measurement is not speed of response with you being on one end, but actually gravity measured by how well people in your system are connected with each other, then you can now look at that as, as a positive of customer centricity rather than a negative or missing it entirely. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, I, I, uh, 
as like you, right, speak a lot and get asked this question a lot of sort of how do we create organizations um, that are more customer centric or or um, really as CEOs start to pivot towards customer experience being one of the things they're aiming for, if you will, you know, it's in their sort of top three remits, uh, is the disconnected teams and disconnected metrics lead to a disconnected experience in the customer's eyes. So you just honed in on actually changing the mental model on the metric, because I think the metrics today lend themselves to the old way, right? That funnel, very linear, outbound, um, push, not pull, right? All the things that you've just been mentioning is the is the metric model people are very comfortable with because they can measure it. It's did we respond in two minutes? How many you know tweets did we get? How much you know? How long are people on the phone in customer service? Whatever it might be, where what you just described, it would not be how quickly a customer service agent replies. It would be is the customer satisfied from a community of customers actually responding, which is another way to give customer service. It's just developed and serviced by the community, right? As you just described. That's right. So how quickly was the customer, how quickly did the customer get their answer, whether you provided it or someone else provided it? Again, if customer centricity is measured by how well they achieve their goals, then you're working backwards from it. So give me some examples that you've seen work. I'm sure you've advised a number of companies, uh, you know, that you've seen them either add to the metric that they have today or that they've started to eliminate some and add those new ones you know so it's not like they started with 10 metrics and now they have 50 it's they started with 10 they've removed four they've added five right so what kinds of new metrics are you seeing on this gravitational uh outside in view right pull in uh around things like customer-centric or customer experience? Yeah, it's a great question. And the, the answer to it is, is that you have to throw one other piece into it. And you, you don't start with the metrics. You have to start with what I call a shared purpose because what's at the center of this solar system or this social system is not you. It's, it's a shared purpose. And we're living and working in a world that is now more reciprocal the relationships are not one way or one to many, they're many to many. And it's all about collaboration and co-creation. So most of most companies have a, a mission that is either a value proposition of what they sell and deliver to customers with maybe a little bit of what they do for the community. I call those a purpose to and a purpose for. But where you have to get to is a purpose with. You have to figure out what is the thing that you and your customers and your employees and your partners are all at work on together. That's what generates the gravity. So when you figure out what that shared purpose is, then you start to put metrics against that purpose. So um, I'll give you an example of this. Um, so some recent work with Staples, and they have a new campaign, if you've seen um, that campaign, which is a pretty significant shift for them. And where that came out is the recognition that um, their purpose is more than just kind of making it easy to shop, if you remember that easy button. Um, they're actually out to help people create a more productive workplace. That's a shared purpose. They contribute something to that. Other people do also. And their relationship is, is kind of like, a, like an outfitter. 
it's more like a, like REI in some sense, you know, you would, or Patagonia, you would go in and they're going to help you outfit your workplace to be more productive. So once you have that shared purpose, then it's not just about, well, how quickly people were able to do a checkout, which is relevant, but it's how well were we able to help this individual or organization be more productive. And that's the working backwards around the metrics. I call them purpose metrics um, and not just process metrics. And that opens up a different world of how to know whether you're helping them achieve their goals. Yeah, and I think when you are a company that is starting out, I think in the, you know, if you're a startup, small business, I think being able to make these shifts of I'm going to become more sort of purposeful and, you know, what's the vision and we're all sort of you know, marching to the same beat and we've got this customer-centric attitude and, you know, all of the things we've been talking about, that isn't quite as dramatic of a shift in thinking, going back to your mental models, as if I'm a business that's been around for, let's just pick 10 years or longer, which means you have a culture that's embedded, systems that are embedded, processes that are embedded, uh, and customers, right? You have a lot of things. So that shift in mental model to what we're talking about is a little bit more difficult. So if you use the Staples example, as you just did, that's obviously a company that's been around a long time. So maybe without necessarily using them as the example, what are the things you've learned on someone who has an established culture and established systems and you know they, un they think they understand what customer centricity means versus somebody who has a fresh slate? What are the pros and cons and, and processes you've seen in either of those? Well, I, I think at the root of it um, that's different is what I call the brand or company DNA. And um, oftentimes I see people as they're looking, particularly now as people are recognizing the need for transformation, digital transformation, company transformation, there's a tendency to kind of get rid of everything and to feel like you have to do something completely new. And I actually spent about a year and a half at Sears a few years ago um, when there was kind of still hope there uh, on the transformation. And what I found was is that um, a lot of what was really rich in terms of helping people make the change was in the history. You know, um, like we talk about content marketing and anyone from Chicago will know that, you know, WLS Radio is a big radio station in Chicago. Well, it stands for World's Largest Store. And it was created by Sears, like in the 30s, as a way to educate farmers on how to be more productive on the farm, because there was a little bit of an economic recession and they needed to free up money for the farmers to be able to keep spending at Sears. So they created a whole foundation on farming techniques. Well, it was classic content marketing, but the radio was the big deal. So there's a lot that you can find by going back when you're transforming an existing organization and, and seeing what are the roots of why the company was there in the first place. What are the things that have been done in times of transition in the past and bringing those forward rather than feeling like you have to be a whole clean sheet of paper like a startup. You, you're not a startup but you can find the roots of your authenticity. Yeah, and I think that that is where people really struggle. I mean, I think, I'm sure, like, like myself, that word disruption, transformation gets tossed around a lot. And I think 
as you mentioned, this sort of cultural DNA or company DNA, this mindset that, that companies have to have from a leadership perspective that going back to your original story around the epiphany and, you know, it has to be like, what business are you really in? It has to start from the top. And so when you speak with leaders about how they get themselves to any of these sorts of conversations, uh, whether it's a startup or it's someone who's an established business, where do you see the resistance or where do you see the embracing? Like what, what is the difference between leaders who go down one of those paths, right? They sort of resist what you say or they're very uh, welcoming or they welcome and then you watch the rest of the company resist. How have you seen people navigate that? Yeah, it's a great, uh, a great question. And I think there are two parts to it. So one is um, around resistance itself is I think we have to be better at figuring out when there's what I would call real resistance and when there's, I don't know if it's pseudo resistance. So real resistance is I understand what you're saying and what you mean. We share a mental, we share the mental model of the thing you're talking about. And I simply disagree with you, you know? I understand you want to paint the house red. I want to paint it blue, um, but we know what it means to paint a house. But then there are situations where we have different mental models of it. You might be saying, you know, I think we really need to be more customer centric. And I might say, well, no, I don't think we need to be customer centric. I think we need to be purpose centric. I'm not actually disagreeing with what you mean, but in some sense I am because we're not on the same page of what we mean by this. And I find that you can overcome a lot of resistance by stepping back and getting at the mental model behind what you mean so that you can see where you actually have a dis difference of opinion and where you just are talking past each other. So that's the first part is you have to shift the thinking first. Then, once if there's real resistance, I find that the key skill, and I think this is a skill that every leader needs to get better at, is you have to be able to, someone once described it as kind of see your own eyeballs. You have to be able to observe your own mental models and see how you're thinking about something. And a good test is, you know, when's the last time in a meeting someone said, not just, well, what are we going to do about this, but how should we think about this? And I find that the leaders who are most open to this are the ones who are most flexible in their thinking. They're able to see things from a different point of view. Um, I remember reading about um, uh, Cartier-Bresson, the great photographer, and that what he had an ability to do is without moving his body, he could visualize what a photograph would look like from all different vantage points. He knew what it would mean if the camera were 30 degrees to the left. And I think that's what leaders have to be able to do today. And the ones that I find are most receptive realize that how they think is not who they are. And the ones who resist are, are really get stuck in, well, I have to think this way because if I don't think this way, I won't be able to produce the results that I need to produce. And if I don't produce those results, then it's going to challenge my sense of identi identity and accomplishment and progress. And so they have a really hard time, I, I describe it as letting go of the old trapeze bar in order to jump to the new one. 
Yeah, and, and and I think that this is a big place that people overlook, right? They they sort of listen to a podcast, re- read a book, have a conversation, and they show up Monday morning and they go, boom, we're going to shift the company tomorrow, right? <laughs> and they <laughs> they don't they don't think about all these other things that are required. Uh, more so than anything else, I think one thing I say all the time is uh, that we are not facing, I mean, we are obviously facing a rapid pace of evolution around technology and all the things tech can do today, no doubt. But I don't think we now have a technology problem. I think we have a people process problem. When companies are trying to actually take advantage of all that is available to them from a technology standpoint, you see it get caught in the people process, metric, team, silos, old way of doing things, DNA, however you want to frame it up. I watch it happen in meetings where you'll see one or two people in the room are all in, right? They get it. They know they're signed up. They know they need to change and they're willing to do whatever it takes. Then you have these middle guys who are like, well, I'll see how it goes, but I'm not going to bet you know, my career on making this shift. I'll kind of do what I need to do and see what's going to happen. And then you have a group of people that are like, uh-uh, I'm out. <laughs> right? Like, I have no interest in doing this. You know, I'm 10 years, 15, 20 years doing it this way. I'm good. And if and if I need to leave and go somewhere else, I will because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to make this personal disruption, right? Because before you can disrupt the business, you almost have to disrupt yourself. And right. that's really tough. Right. And and I would say that part of that people process problem is that is the process the mental model of process, right? We look at the world because of the work that happened, you know, over the last 30 years, we've introduced this dominant mental model of, of business process, which didn't exist before. And now we just take it for granted that everything is a process, but that's only one way of looking at the world. And so some of it is, is that the process is broken and you have to fix the process. Some of the problem is, is that we're trying to solve the problem by fixing the process. And the solution is not going to happen, but with process, it's going to happen with purpose or with principles or with other tools. And that's really where I focus on is what are the other tools that can be more effective in helping people operate in this new world? Because it needs different tools. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure, Mark. You know, I, I remember how I first learned of you as you wrote this fantastic article on HBR called Don't Sell a Product, Sell a Whole New Way of Thinking. And of course, I you know immediately read it. Uh, and it's been one I always refer back to. So for anybody who wants to go back in time and read that, uh, Mark has done some fantastic uh, work in HBR that is just right up everybody's alley. Uh, it's helpful to everyone. So if there's anything that you would like to leave uh, our audience with today on sort of what you think is next uh, for these conversations around customer centricity and uh, the social side of engaging with customers, uh, what would that be? What do you see sort of happening next in the market? Um, I think that what we're going to see is um, an evolution around this idea of customer experience that right now customer experience is kind of seen still through a transactional lens. And it's a little bit of like each step in the funnel and moving people through the process. Uh, and I think that we're going to start to see, I hope, um, more of a focus on this idea of the, the customer purpose. Um, I often hear people talk about customer journey and it, it's kind of a sales funnel eating its own tail the pivot point is still the transaction. I don't think people care about the transaction very much. In fact, I think 
the power of Uber and others like that is, is you're not even aware that you're making the transaction. And so shifting the focal point to be more of a shared purpose and then reimagining what we mean by customer experience and customer journey around that shared purpose, I think will be the next evolution of those who really win. Well, great. Thank you so much, Mark, for spending time with us today on the What's Next podcast. Appreciate it. And I'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Very good. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you for tuning in to the What's Next podcast. Appreciate your support. Please make sure you subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a review. Head on over to tiffanybova.com backslash next for show notes and additional insights from me. And I'll see you on the next show. Thanks again. Thank you.